I'm Lake Miller. And I'm Hannah Brown. Welcome to Gem City Diversity, a podcast where we talk about diversity and inclusion in the Dayton area. We're from the National Conference for Community and Justice of Greater Dayton, or NCCJ. NCCJ works in the Miami Valley to increase understanding around the topics of diversity and inclusion. In this part two episode of our series on interpreters, Lake and Gloria discuss dealing with telemarketers and scam calls in the deaf community, the role of mandated reporting, the lack of diversity in interpreters, and the intersection between being an interpreter and a CODA, or a kid of a deaf adult. Enjoy! Um, so it occurs to me, like, as you're going through a lot of these situations, and this is something that I think maybe we've touched on in some of the episodes before, but that there's some moments where, um, where, like you said, you have to provide that kind of cultural context to an individual. And so I think about like telemarketers or someone who's calling somebody trying to scam this deaf person or any of those types of situations where, you know, maybe you as a hearing person just understand a little bit more about this situation. Um, so I guess my first part of this would be can you talk about some of those tricky situations where you need to provide that cultural context or where you're even in that strange position where maybe you feel like you need to step out of your role of just interpreting? Um, and then also, like, what do you do in those situations? So uh, according to my boss and the, the rules that I follow, especially for video interpreting, because that's when you get most of the telemarketer and all those scam calls that happen, deaf people are a largely preyed upon group because they are highly vulnerable because they don't have the like background, you know, hearing people, we hear about these scam calls because people talk about them around us all the time. We know what they sound like. We know what to look for. Right. But in the deaf community, they don't have as much access to like phones and things like that in the same way, especially the older generation. Um, so they get preyed upon a lot. I can't tell you how many phone calls I've interpreted where I have given like the only thing that we're allowed to do in VRS technically is give hints. So if somebody's got a really strong accent, if I hear chickens in the background, if they're demanding like go to Target and get me a credit card right now, go get a gift card. If not, your social security is going to be suspended, right? So they use threats and things like that to to convince people. They are also really cunning because they use things to connect with people. And they're like, oh, you remind me of my, my mom. You're so sweet, this, this, and this. And like, you are talking to a real person. So it feels oftentimes that like if an interpreter isn't clear about how they're presenting that information, yeah, it's easy for a deaf person to pick up their credit card and give you the numbers because the interpreter didn't give any indication that this was a scam call. Now, me personally, if I have the ability and if somebody's like, is this a scam question mark? I'm like, because I do feel responsibility. It is to me, it's culturally mediating to tell them like, this is not accurate. Don't give your credit card here. Like I can't tell a deaf person what to do technically, but if I tell them, Ooh, this call is weird. Like 
they're asking and they're yelling and they're mad and they're telling you about social security, just a heads up, social security doesn't call you unless they send a letter first, right? So then I try to give these hints so that deaf people can make that decision on their own. That's what we've been taught to do. Are there times when like a 90 year old woman comes up on my screen and she's like, I'm going to give them my credit card that I've been like, don't admittedly. Yes. Would I get in trouble for that? Maybe. But at the same time, as a coda and as somebody who understands that culturally, a lot of these people don't understand these scam calls. They just, it's not a part of their world. It is my job in the CPC to culturally mediate and to let you know that this is an unsafe call. Um, but they they do get preyed upon a lot. And I have had situations where even if you give all of the clues, the deaf person's still like, my credit card is 4079. And you're like, oh my God. So it happens. It happens even if you tell them like, don't trust this person. It happens. And at the end of the day, as an interpreter, I can't take away the decision-making power from a deaf person. If they so choose to do this, even after I have given everything I can, even if, even if I tell them this is a scam, like don't trust it. If they still go for it, I have no other choice but to interpret it because at the end of the day, they have the choice and the freedom of like the free will to make the decision of I'm going to do this or not. Um, so that's the other thing. It's like, you know, people don't talk about the fact like sex calls or drug calls, like that stuff happens. People order drugs. People will have phone sex. Like those are things that we do interpret. Those are things that people have access to. And those are very intimate things, but like deaf people have just as much of a right to do and make mistakes to, to have these interactions. You know, I have so many interpreters who are like, oh my God, I think I just sold drugs for somebody. And it's like, yeah, you might've. And they're like, I didn't feel good about that. It's not your job to feel anything about it. Your job is to just make sure that the deaf person got what they needed. Um, and so, you know, as interpreters, the other thing too, um, that we didn't talk too, too much about, but I'm hoping we can get somebody else to talk about is the fact that there's no diversity really in interpreters. I think something like 90% of interpreters are white women, um, including myself. And, that makes it really hard when you've got an incredibly diverse group of people that you're serving, you know, and you can't always culturally mediate in the appropriate way if you have no diversity, no understanding of diversity and no understanding of who your client base is. So there's a lot of privilege and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of privilege as an interpreter. You have full control over what people are going to say and do. You could change the meaning of an entire conversation. If you wanted to end early, you could, and nobody would really be there to question you because you're the language expert. Um, and do hearing interpreters take advantage of that? Absolutely. That's another conversation for another day about my issues with like other interpreters, especially hearing and white interpreters who fail to recognize their privilege on a day-to-day -day basis. Some interpreters who are just going to sit back and be like, yeah, they're giving me their credit card number. I like to sleep at night and I don't like to do things that don't let me sleep at night. And if I do something at work, that hurts somebody else or could hurt somebody else, I'm not going to sleep well. So I work from my heart and that's the truth. That's the truth. I work from the bottom of my heart. And um, sometimes that means doing things that maybe other interpreters frown upon, but I'm not other interpreters and I don't, 
I, I justify everything through the CPC. You can ask me about why I did something and I will have an answer because everything I do is very intentional in this profession. It has to be. Um, you, and uh, I would encourage other interpreters to start asking those same questions. It's very easy to get brainwashed by the programs that we come through by our interpreter training programs, but when they're not taught by deaf people, when we're not being taught by deaf people, when we're not listening to deaf people, when the only people that we're listening to are hearing people, we're missing the one voice of the most important people that we serve. And so for me, the deaf client is always the priority simply because that is who needs the service and that is why I am here. Am I here for the hearing client? I know I said in the beginning, yeah, I'm here for the hearing client because you don't speak sign language. They do. You don't. You're the, you're the one that needs the interpreter, not the deaf person. But at the same time, this deaf person does need that service provided. And I'm going to show up every single time to do what I can and to empower that person as much as possible. And um, those are conversations that are currently happening in the deaf community and in the interpreting community it talks about diversity and um, how to get more interpreters who look like us, who sound like us, who feel like us, how to get more genuine, authentic reactions from interpreters. Because for so long, we've been taught this like conduit. I'm just here to facilitate the communication. I'm just here for the language. Truth of the matter is, is that we're not. Um, I'm sorry. I feel like I went all the way around your question. Your question was what? No, that was perfect. That was, that was a great answer. <laughs> and, and I do have a follow-up to it though. So sure. you talked about, you know, some calls like drug calls or sex calls or, or any of these types of calls. And, and that makes me think, it, does mandated reporting live within the interpreting community such that if I hear somebody talking about how they just sexually abused a minor or anything like this, like where does that fall into this code of ethics? And that's a really, really, really good question because sometimes we're faced with ethical dilemmas that we don't know what the hell we're supposed to do. There's a whole book called, So You Wanna Be an Interpreter? And the book is filled with scenarios that have really happened to interpreters that have had to figure out like ethically, what is the right thing to do here? You know, anywhere from I'm with a client and she goes into labor to, I showed up in my client, I showed up at a therapy appointment and I stayed in the room with the client and the client told me they wanted to commit suicide or they wanted to act on suicide. And when the therapist came in, the therapist asked, are you having any suicidal ideation? And the client goes, no. What do you do? Because you as the interpreter have that background information, you know, but that person told you in confidence, you know, so it can get, it can get really, really sticky very fast. Um, I always try to go the route of what's going to help me sleep at night as part of the medical team, because that's what you are as an interpreter. You are part of the medical team. You are part of the team that is um, providing solutions for deaf people. Um, you know, the therapy example that I just gave is really, really hard because you're not really part of the therapist team like you are, but you're not. That's why, that's also another reason why agencies will say like, don't go into a room. Don't be alone with a deaf client because they could give you information that um, that you have to do something with. Um, I know for video relay, there is an option, but like it really leaves us as interpreters kind of like 
blind to what happens in the process afterwards. So like, for example, if I'm on a call and I see that a parent is hitting a child, abusing a child, what I can do is I can write down the number of the call. They can track that call. And then Sorensen can send somebody out there to check the situation. And a lot of times, especially with serious things like that, you know, Sorensen won't go out by themselves. They'll take a social worker, some kind of um, CPS professional for something like that. Um, but the thing is, is that as interpreters, I don't really have a lot of power. All I can do is write that number down and hope that somebody does something with it. I can go, I can tell my director and be like, I observed this, this is really concerning to me, but like, all I have is the information on my screen normally. Um, and that leaves us feeling very powerless, like mandated reporting. I wouldn't say like, Yes, we are mandated reporters, but it depends on the situation, which is so funny because in interpreting, everything depends on the situation because the situation can change in a minute. It's the running joke of your ITP program. You know, you can ask an, a teacher and they'll be like, well, what do you do about this? And the teacher's like, it depends, <laughs> like it all depends. And so I personally would be the one making a ruckus and saying like, I saw this, I saw this, I'm taking down all of this information. Like I'm going to follow up with Sorensen, but I don't think that necessarily like, you know, if you're an interpreter, you're working with a child at school and child comes home, comes to school with bruises and things like that. That is a much different situation than a situation where I'm on a call. Can I prove that this was really happening? Is there, you know what I mean? Like it gets harder when, when there's no evidence or there's no, like, all I did was see something. Did I really see what I saw? Like, you know, um, it gets, that gets really complicated too, but in person, things like that, like you work for a school district, you're a mandated reporter. If you are working with a social worker, you're a mandated reporter, things like that. Um, and I think that now like therapist office and offices where, those types of situations can come up where like the interpreter is kind of stuck in the situation. They, they make sure now to clarify prior to, and as the interpreter, I also like to clarify, like anything you tell me in this situation, I have to report back to the doctor or the therapist or whoever, because that's what I'm here for. I'm hired by them. And a lot of the times, if I set that boundary up with deaf clients, um, they'll follow that. I really haven't had too much of an issue, but things like that do happen. Like, what do you do if your client tells you they want to hurt themselves? And then the doctor comes in and they're like, no, I'm fine. And they're like, I'm going to hurt myself tonight. I'm going to do it tonight when the doctor leaves. Like those situations, those things happen. They have happened. Um, and, you know, as an interpreter, my personal opinion would be, look, I'm sorry. I love you, my deaf client, but I love you so much that I'm going to make sure that you're taken care of. Um, how I do it is going to depend, you know, I would probably, me personally, I would probably try to convince the deaf person to say something themselves and be like, if you don't, I will kind of thing, but you don't always get that connection with a deaf person to be able to do those things. You know, if I see something on a video call and they flash up and then they close it out, like they shut it down and I see something like now I don't have any of that information. Now I don't know who these people were. I don't even have a name sometimes. Um, so it can get really sticky. And as the interpreter, is it really my job to say something? Some interpreters would argue, no, it is not. Others will say yes. And I, I'm more along that line because I feel that this is already an emotional job. Like 
there's no need to make it harder on other people when we have the tools and the cultural knowledge. Like that's what we have our degrees in is cultural mediation and linguistics. We are experts of psychosocial analysis. Like we are behavioral analysis. We walk in in the first five minutes. I can tell you a lot about a deaf person that I just met because I'm watching how they speak. I'm watching how they sit. I'm watching their tone. I'm watching things like that, that give me hints as to who they are. Um, and so when you get a really complicated situation like this and you have to think quickly, you know, interpreting teaches you to think on your toes. Like after a couple of years, you're like, mm, you told me this was a hospital call, but you didn't tell me this was a psychiatric break. You know what I mean? Like you never know what you're going to show up for. And I think that that's really fun, but also like that's part of the job of being an interpreter. You really never know. The, the agency could tell you, yeah, you're subbing for a six for a, for a educational interpreter for a six-year-old, then you show up and the six-year-old has, you know, multiple disabilities or other things that maybe you didn't anticipate. Um, and you just got to think quickly and be malleable and flexible. And I think that um, having like emotional and empathy, compassion, having those kinds of like characteristics help you be more adaptable and flexible because you're not sticking to this rigid code of conduct that isn't really rigid at all. It's a guideline. They are guidelines for interpreters to follow, but they're not rules that we have to follow. Um, it's like I said, it's not like a doctor's code of ethics. We have them, we abide by them, but how we interpret those code of ethics is different. How, how interpreters view that and apply that code of ethics is different for every interpreter. I stand by the idea that if you know, if you're going to do harm to yourself, someone else, or me, or whatever the case may be, I'm going to find a way to report it, whether that be back to the agency, whether that be to the medical professional, whether that be talking with the deaf client, whatever the case may be, um, I'm not going to leave that person in a state of danger because how the hell am I going to sleep? I'm not, I'm not ever going to sleep again. If something would have happened to that person, um, my job becomes more than an interpreter at that point. And some interpreters would argue that that is a breach of ethics, but so often we have to step out of our roles because people don't know what we do and we have to fulfill other roles to be able to do the interpreter role. Um, so yeah, mandated reporting is not, it's, it's one of those things. It can be, it's, it depends. Um, I would like to say that most interpreters will say something, but what happens after that, the process after that, like after we've reported and how that's handled is out of our hands. The majority of the time, we're pretty powerless in that kind of a situation. If you're an educational interpreter and you're constantly with a student, you might have a little bit more access. Um, or if you're constantly with some kind of a client, maybe constant therapy or things like that, you might have a little bit more access and even a little bit more like ability to connect and talk with this person. But um, a lot of the times you just get a phone call, you know, and it can be, it can be really hard. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Um, I appreciate you sharing everything today and, and through this entire series, it's been a lot of fun working with you. Oh, I had fun working with you too. Thank you.